first, we start with an economy that teetering on a recession. Maybe we're in a recession already. We had the mini budget last week from Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland saying, yeah, yeah, times could be tough, but Canada faring better than other countries. Got a great panel here standing by to talk about this. Have a listen to Christian Freeland here at last week's economic update. Canada's economic growth has been the strongest in the G7, stronger than the United States, stronger than the United Kingdom, stronger than Germany, stronger than France, stronger than Italy or Japan. Okay, but she also acknowledges times are tough. We could be heading into a recession. And she does say she feels your pain that she herself cut her Disney Plus streaming service the other day to save money. That got a lot of reaction. Let's discuss it all with the great panel now. Jim Stanford, economist at the Center for Future Work. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jim. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Philip Cross on the line. Philip is a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. He's the former chief economic analyst at StatsCan. Very pleased to welcome Philip back. Philip, thank you for coming on. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Philip, thank thank you. Let me go to you first, Philip. What do you think of what was your reaction to the fall economic statement from the finance minister the other day? Are they on the right track? No, uh, it's just more of the same from this government. Uh, Even after uh, all these temporary pandemic programs have expired, government spending, federal government spending is still 30 percent higher than it was before the pandemic. I don't think Canadians feel that they're getting 30 percent more government. They're not getting 30 percent more education, more health care. They're not getting better uh, services at airports or passport offices. Uh, so you have to re- re- raise the question: Where is all this money going? Yeah, do you think the do you think uh, excessive government spending is actually making the situation worse, especially for like in terms of inflation? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, the Bank of Canada has clearly said they're raising interest rates because demand is higher than supply. The best this government is able to do is to slow the rate of increase of its spending, but nevertheless, it's just pouring more gasoline on the fire by by continually raising spending. Its revenues were inflated $30 billion by inflation. It's spending half of that windfall. Jim Stanford, your thoughts? Well, uh, actually, government spending is falling, and quite rapidly. Last year, we had a humongous decrease in government spending measured in dollars. This current fiscal year, 22-23, it's still falling in actual dollars. And then in real per capita terms, uh, it's falling even faster. And we are seeing a decline in the profile of uh, federal government spending over the coming years. We're going to see, by their projections, a a balanced budget within uh, four or five years, which is much faster than expected. So if, in fact, government spending was the source of all of our problems, then we should be knocking on the doors of Nirvana right now, Mike, because the government spending uh, is, is falling uh, quite rapidly. Are you really buying that, that they're going to balance the budget in four years? Well, uh, I, that's what the projections are. The, the reality is that their revenues have grown quite quickly, in part because of the strong recovery, and in part, as Phil says, because of uh, inflation. <laughs> And so the deficit is much smaller than was projected. And uh, even with the, you know, the sort of status quo spending that they see going forward, 
um, not an increase, a, a decrease in, in relative terms, but uh, still maintaining okay. the existing programs that we have, uh, they'll, still, they'll still see the deficit uh, disappear. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. The deficit is so small now, it's less than 1% of GDP. The debt is falling rapidly as a share of GDP. Uh, so, you know, the deficit is not our problem. We've got other things to worry about, like this possibility of a recession, but uh, I'm yeah. not losing any sleep on the deficit. Philip Cross, what do you say to that? Uh, well, spending is falling, but only because all these massive government stimulus programs to support the economy during COVID, like CERB, and the wage subsidies are expiring. That's why I went back and I compared to the size of government in the upcoming year when there's no COVID-related spending to the year just before COVID in 2019-2020. There we see a 30% expansion of government. That's the permanent underlying increase in government spending. And that's where I question, are we getting 30% better government? Are we getting 30% more government? Or are we just getting uh, more civil servants talking to each other? Okay, talking about the economy of Jim Stanford and Philip Cross. Hey, guys, let me play this clip for you from Finance Minister Christian Freeland that got her into some hot water the other day. She kind of walked it back a bit the next day, but let's listen to what she had to say. So here she is saying that she feels your pain. She knows people are hurting out there in this economy. She feels it too. Here's what she had to say. Personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now. You don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. Every little bit helps. Okay. I mean, this is a finance minister that's making, what, well over 200 k a year. She's married to a reporter for the New York Times. He, he must make a six-figure salary. Uh, Jim, I mean, what did you think of this? I mean, this in this income that she has, and she's she says she's tightening her belt by cutting Disney Plus. Well, Mike, uh, every time a, a politician tries to pretend they're an average person and <laughs> feels the challenges of life like the rest of us, they usually end up with mud on their face, and that's uh, true for her today uh, as well. So, obviously, that was a tone deaf statement. Now. 200,000, you know, in the grand scheme of things compared to the business sector, that's peanuts. So, you know, we can't point the finger at our uh, finance minister as making an extravagant salary, but she's clearly comfortable. And uh, and that was a tone deaf thing. And then all of the others piling on her. When I see Mr. Polyev piling on her for that, he doesn't have to worry about his streaming service. He's in a rent mansion, thanks to the taxpayer. So, Whatever political stripe it is, the politicians should stop trying to pretend and pose like they're just like us and talk about serious policy issues. That would make more sense. Philip Cross, what did you think of that? Well, I'd agree with Jim about posing to be ordinary people, but I don't really care how Christia Freeland manages her personal finances. What concerns me as a taxpayer is how she manages government finances, how she manages the the finances of people paying taxes uh, to support the government. Uh, I couldn't care less when she goes home, whether she's cheap or profligate. What I care about is why would somebody in this government rent a hotel in London for $6,000 a night when it's trying to pretend that it's cutting back in spending? All right, welcome back. We're talking about this economy. Are we teetering on a recession right now? Is the government going in the right direction or the wrong direction here? You heard those comments from Christian Freeland, the finance minister, saying that she's feeling the pain Canadians are feeling. 
her family cut their Disney Plus streaming service. Have a listen to what she had to say about this yesterday. She was asked about this comment, got a lot of attention and criticism. Sort of walking it back a little bit here. Have a listen to what she said. I want to start by really recognizing that I am a very privileged person, for sure. Uh, Like other elected federal leaders, um, I am paid a, a really significant salary. And I know that that puts me in a really, really privileged position. Yeah, and I think she seems to realize now, and that awkward kind of statement there, that maybe saying that she cut her Disney Plus service probably didn't land like she thought it would. 604, if you call me right now, you'll get through. Open phone line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Jim Stanford and Philip Cross are my guests. Let's go to Brian in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Brian, go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, yes, I'm calling in regards to the uh, oh uh, Shane Ramsey, from CEO of BC Housing. It seems ironic that... Uh, while uh, David Eby fired a board of directors, the entire board of directors for mismanagement and fraud of BC Housing, that uh, Mr. Uh, Ramsey decides it's uh, coincidentally time to retire. He can no longer handle the complex issues of BC Housing. Um, is that the real reason, or is he guilty of okay. fraud and mismanagement? I think, you're, I think you're, you're way off topic, but so, you know, I, I think it does. It does get back, though, to issues of spending on social services in Vancouver. And we're going to get into that today, too. Especially some of the eye-popping numbers that came out in this leaked report about how much is being spent. Millions of dollars a day. Let me go back to our panelists here. Jim Stanford. Jim, do you think that the Bank of Canada is doing the right thing by jacking up interest rates right now? Or do you think that could make it worse? Well, uh, everyone thinks, or most economists think, we are going to head into a recession, in part because the Bank of Canada is raising rates, in part because other central banks around the world are raising rates. Now, the good news, Mike, is the recession hasn't started yet. We had an eye-popping, very positive number on the jobs report uh, last week, just after uh, Krista Freeland's mini-budget, uh, 108,000 new jobs created in uh, in Canada in October. So that was that was a bit of good news. Uh, so, you know, I guess it's possible we could end up with this mythical soft landing that we're uh, that we're always hoping for that you could cool off inflation without throwing the economy into recession but uh, history suggests that's not going to happen history suggests we will get a recession and that's where you know we're gonna have to be ready with the supports for people including uh, ei for people who lose their jobs philip cross your thoughts uh, well, I'm not worried about recession yet. I'm worried about high rates of inflation. I don't, outside yeah. of the housing market, which, where the Bank of Canada's actions have succeeded in taking prices off the boil. Uh, but outside of that, you know, prices continue to rise. Um, Jim mentioned the very strong employment numbers. Wages continue to increase, in, leading to the possibility of a wage price spiral. Uh, oil prices are edging back up to $100 a barrel. Uh, so, you know, we've still got a, a lot of work to do in inflation. And I think the stack in numbers coming out next week, the next CPI report, will reflect that inflation continues to be the number one problem for Canadians. Jim Stanford, you agree? 
uh, we probably will see an uptick in inflation uh, next week. I think Phil's right. Uh, gasoline prices were the main reason that we saw a bit of easing of inflation uh, from 8% down to 6.9% at the last reading. But gasoline prices have come back up. Uh, so that's probably going to push us back up over 7%. So uh, the interest rates, uh, Phil is right, have had very little impact so far. And they generally don't uh, for at least 12 or 18 months after they start the, the uh, lifting rate. So probably uh, it's going to be next year that we'll see the signs of a real slowdown in job creation and business investment. There's a tremendous debate in the country right now about whether government spending is at least partly to blame for the, the inflation rate that we see in the country. And we touched on that briefly earlier in our discussion. Let me play a clip, guys, from Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. Here he is reacting to the mini budget that Finance Minister Christian Freeland put out the other day, criticizing overspending by government. Have a listen to what he says, then I'll get your thoughts. Pierre Polyev here. This inflationary scheme triples, triples, triples the tax on home heat, gas and groceries and adds $20 billion of inflationary spending that will drive up the cost of living and we will vote against this inflationary spending. Okay, uh, Philip Cross, you agree with him? Well, I think to, I would agree that there's very little in this budget to actually help struggling homeowners and uh, middle-class people. There was some relief offered to low-income people, but your average Canadian out there facing a $600 hike in their monthly mortgage payment or a doubling of their home heating bills, uh, you know, there was no relief offered in the budget to, to the, these people. Jim Stanford, your thoughts? Well, the reason home heating and gas and housing costs uh, and food costs are going up is uh, almost nothing to do with government taxes and almost everything to do with private profits. The energy industry is making more money than they have ever made in history every time we fill up at the tank. And Mr. Polyev can try to point the finger at government, but in fact, it's uh, corporate power and corporate greed that's the key ingredient there. All right, guys, I want to thank you for another great discussion. Appreciate your time today. Jim Stanford, Center for Future Work, Philip Cross, McDonald Laurier Institute. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Justin Trudeau government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act now during the truckers' convoy protest that blocked the streets of Ottawa earlier this year. The Federal Emergencies Act was invoked on February 14th to deal with the protests. It was the first time this act was ever used. It gave the government some extraordinary powers to deal with the public emergency. The government said it was needed uh, to deal with the convoy protest. The Emergencies Act was revoked, um, I believe it was nine days later, uh, was it necessary? That is the subject of hearings that continue in Ottawa. These hearings have been fascinating. Uh, been a long list of witnesses that continue to testify about the use of this act. And we've got some clips from highlights we're going to play for you. Also got a great guest standing by. Have a listen to this here first. Now, this is Ottawa resident Victoria Della Ronde describing the impacts of the convoy on her and her health. Have a listen. The long-term effects are loss of hearing, loss of balance, some vertical, uh, triggered by the sound of any horn now, uh, triggered by certain music, as the music was very loud, 
and, and a physical trigger when I get a smell of gas. Both my throat and uh, lungs start to uh, feel infected. Okay. Was it necessary, though, to invoke the Emergencies Act to deal with the situation? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jack Rosdilski, professor in disaster and emergency management at York University. Very pleased to welcome him. Jack, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Mike. Good morning. Hey, good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. Okay, there's been a lot of attention on the testimony at this inquiry right now, and we've hear, there, there's a lot of argument going on, too, about whether the government did the right thing here in bringing in this Emergencies Act in order to deal with this crisis. Let me play another clip here for you for your thoughts. This is... Drew Dilkins, who is the mayor of Windsor, and he's talking about the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge there, and you'll hear him confirm here that they were able to clear that bridge before the Emergency Act was imposed. Let's have a listen here. He's an exchange here with a commission lawyer. Have a listen. Um, and just to be clear, the uh, the blockade on was cleared and the bridge reopened before the Emergencies Act was invoked. Is that right? So the 13th around midnight into the 14th, I think the bridge opened around midnight on the 14th. So the Emergencies Act came was invoked sometime on the 14th. So yes, the answer to your question is yes. Okay, great. So none of the measures in the Emergencies Act were used to clear the blockade since it came after, correct? Correct. Okay. Jack, what do you think of that? That's one of the exchanges that's getting some attention here for people who think that the government didn't need to do this. They didn't need to bring in the Emergencies Act. What do you think of the testimony that we've heard so far? I found that to be very interesting in relation to the case in Windsor, because first of all, we have to realize there were emergencies taking place at various locations in Canada, the Ambassador Bridge, Ottawa Parliamentary Precinct in downtown, and also in uh, the border crossings in Alberta. But specifically in relationship to the situation at the Ambassador Bridge, the bridge protest was cleared following a court's approval of an injunction, where most of the activity took place on February 12 and 13 by the Ontario Provincial Police under existing laws, under existing emergency measures. So it's interesting to note that at least in the case of Windsor, the blockade was brought to an end by existing laws and procedures without the Emergencies Act. However, uh, yesterday I noted the mayor also suggested that the Emergencies Act was extremely helpful and that it could have contributed to discouraging the protest from again popping up and blocking the bridge in the next week. Because as we note, the Ambassador Bridge was blocked once for a period of time. But then after the February 14 invocation of the Emergencies Act, we did not see at least any Ambassador Bridge blockades happen again. Yeah, that jumped out at me, too, where that police police officer did acknowledge that, well, maybe the Emergencies Act kind of dissuaded people from, from going back to the bridge and blocking it again. Maybe. I mean, there, I guess he didn't have any proof of that. But he also said that they were able, they didn't even use the Emergencies Act in order to clear that bridge. Does that bolster and, and the... It, go ahead. Oh, and again, I, I, that goes back to the big question here. We're trying to, all of us are trying to figure out right now. Uh, was the Emergencies Act necessary to uh, uh, bring the um, 
blockades to bring the problems in places like Ottawa and Windsor to an end. Yeah, that's that's what we're trying to figure out. That's, we're getting so many interesting points of view here day by day. It seems like every day more and more of the story is unwinding in detail that we did not necessarily have to consider before these hearings. For sure. We're getting more information on a daily basis on this. It's been really interesting. Let me play another clip here for you for your thoughts. Now, this is a lawyer representing the Ottawa Police Department, David Mijakovsky, and he's questioning here Tamara Leach, who was one of the key organizers of the con of the trucker convoy. And this is interesting, too. He He suggests to her, he tells her that, did the police clearly tell her, look, it's time for you to pack up and leave. And was she asked to tell the other members of the convoy, you must leave the streets of Ottawa? Here's what she had to say. Listen to this exchange and I'll get your thoughts. And they told you to depart and they told you to message that to others. I don't right? recall them telling me to message that to others or that I was that I needed to leave. I'm sorry, you don't It was remember? suggested. It seems to me your memory is selective. Okay, so Tamara Leach, one of the, the most high-profile organizers of the convoy, of course, was saying that, denying that she was told to leave the streets by police, it was suggested. What, what do you think of that distinction she made, Jack? Uh, I, I look at that distinction in two, from two perspectives. One perspective is if we consider that to be a perspective of just a singular lady who is on the ground in the chaos of the occupation of Ottawa, there's a lot of noise, there's distractions, there's adrenaline, there's mixed messages. From the point of view of one singular person on the ground, it may be, it could be understandable that they may not see the entire bigger picture. But if we take another point of view here of the bigger picture, the occupation was going on for a week and a half, two weeks. We know for a fact from the hearings that police liaison teams were on the ground attempting to engage in dialogue and communication with uh, protesters. Um, it could be suggested that perhaps um, not being not for a person who is a, a leader of the protest, perhaps happening having a bigger picture view, not being aware that the police wanted the um, occupiers to cease and desist and leave the city could be interpreted perhaps as Mm. stretching the limits of credibility of the witness. Let's listen to another exchange here during the testimony talking about the Federal Emergencies Act. Was it necessary to impose it during the trucker convoy protests in Ottawa earlier this year? Have a listen to this. This one got a lot of attention. So this is uh, lawyer Paul Champ questioning Keith Wilson, who is a lawyer for the convoy protesters. And you'll hear Keith Wilson, the convoy protesters lawyer, acknowledge that they were getting inside information from the police about their tactics. Have a listen to this exchange. Get your thoughts. You were getting information from sympathetic police. Is that right? That's correct. Throughout. Yes. Getting information from sympathetic police officers throughout the protest. Jack, Ottawa police said, have now said that there is a review or another investigation going on into that. What, what did you think of that exchange? Uh, and, and, indeed, uh, because we, we know from both observing what happened in February and now especially we know from the hearings that there was disagreement and infighting within the police of how to handle the protest. 
where one side wanted to stress negotiations to bring things to an end with de-escalation, while others in uh, law enforcement wanted to stress action to remove uh, the protesters from the streets quicker. And that goes back to the first, uh, um, the first sound clip you played with the resident of Ottawa under extreme duress from the situation. Uh, but I think what we saw here, which is concerning, when these situations are managed, they are managed through something that's called the incident command system. And the key element of the incident command system is unity of effort. And mm. what we're hearing from that quote is that the unity of effort has broken down when people in the same uh, agencies are working at cross purposes against one another, which leads to um, a response not uh, working as well as it could. Mm. We've heard a lot of very dramatic and at times emotional testimony during this inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. Uh, we heard from, as you mentioned, a, 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 an Ottawa resident who described what she says is long-term impacts on her health that she experienced from the protest. Let's listen to Tamara Leach here again now, the, one of the key organizers of the convoy. And here she is describing why she organized this in the first place. Have a listen. I found his rhetoric to be incredibly divisive and I'm a, I'm a believer that if you're a leader of a country you have to lead all of your people even if you don't agree with them and I, I just saw so much coming across Canada every day I heard stories people at least three people would tell me they were planning their suicides until we started the convoy or stories of people that we were too late I heard from families that were living in their vehicles because they'd lost their jobs. Convoy organizer Tamara Leach there, emotional testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry. And you heard her criticize Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's, what she called rhetoric on, uh, against people who are unvaccinated. And then she went on to describe why she did this because of some of the vac vaccine mandates that were in place in the country. I mean, I, I found her, her testimony r r really quite powerful in many ways. On the, on the other hand, does that mean that the government had the right to, to bring in an emergencies act to deal with these protests? What are your thoughts, Jack? Yeah, uh, yeah we, we just look at uh, everywhere in Canada. I think at this point in time, all of us are sick and tired of being sick and tired of going through the entirety of the experience of COVID. We know that a lot of people have been negatively impacted by COVID health-wise. Some have lost their jobs. Travel has been restricted. Families' economies have been destroyed. All of those things have happened. But, Mike, at the same time, I looked at the public health data this morning. 46,710, let me repeat that, 46,710 Canadians to date have been killed by COVID-19. So I think the bottom line here is we're talking about protecting the public good and how that can be done in the uh, best way for all of Canada. And the bottom line is there's a lot of anxiety and people want their anxieties that are being experienced to be recognized. And the Freedom Convoy was how a certain group of people made their anxieties very public. But I also want to point out um, the other anxieties being experienced by family members of the 46,000 Canadians who have been killed since COVID-19 came into Canada. 
and uh, beginning in uh, January of 2020. So, I mean, these are sensitive times. These these are sensitive times, and we have to understand there's a lot of points of views. All can take on greater or lesser uh, legitimacy here. All right, talking about the Emergencies Act, full phone board. We won't get to all these calls. Get to as many as I can. Wayne in Richmond. Hi, Wayne. Go ahead. Yeah, Mike, I just wanted to to know if you could clarify how many court injunctions were issued in Ottawa prior to the Emergency Measures Act. Like in Windsor, your guest just said there was one in Windsor, and the bridge got cleared just on a a court order. Uh, The second thing is taking away uh, your ability to get funds out of your account to buy uh, legal fees or a lawyer to protect yourself. That's a clear violation of Canadian rights because nobody was convicted of anything, and they still were denied access to money to get a lawyer. Okay. Okay, thank you. Let me see if Jack... Jack, do you know how many injunctions were obtained? Uh, uh, no, off the top of my head, I, I there were injunctions issued, but I don't know how how many. Uh, but I want to respond also to the uh, uh, second point. Sure. And that's one... Um, in relation to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, the Emergencies Act actually has in its legislation that a commission has to be convened after the implementation of, after the invocation of the act, to ask some of these basic questions, was yeah. charter, were charter rights violated and how the Emergencies Act was implemented? So I think your guest is asking an important question, and hopefully some of the testimony in the final report in February will shed light on that very issue. Yeah, I hope so too. Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan, go ahead. you got 30 seconds here. Hi, I got two points. One, I think that it's pretty clear that Ontario and Ottawa, the police forces at least, were unwilling or unable to act. So I think the federal government did have a, a, a just cause in acting here. Whether they used the right tool or not, I think is a, a different question. But on the other side, I do have some sympathy to these protesters, just like the Ferry Creek protesters, in that you know, 800,000 people voted for the People's Party and they didn't get any representation. When the majority decides to... Uh, use a system that excludes minorities from representation. I don't think you should be surprised when those minorities get upset. Ryan, thank you for the call. Jack, your final thoughts here. we got 30 seconds here to wrap up. Uh, my, my final thoughts was um, the, the Emergencies Act was first came into being 34 years ago. February 14, 2022, the first time it was implemented. We saw what happened. We're asking a lot of questions, and we want to understand exactly what happened. So in the next emergency, should this ever have to be used again, we do this better than what we did earlier this year. Yeah, I'm glad they're doing the hearings. Jack, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about the World Cup of Soccer now coming to the Middle East country of Qatar. The tournament starts November 20th, so less than two weeks away now. Canada competing at the World Cup this year. That's very exciting. It's one of the biggest sporting events in the world. Will you be watching the games this year? I always I always enjoy the World Cup. I look forward to it. Let's talk about, though, the continuing controversy around the choice of Qatar to host this event. Many suspicions of corruption involved in the selection of this country to host the World Cup. That's something that's been denied by Qatar and also by FIFA, the world governing body of, of soccer. This is a small country, though. Three million population. Less than three million. Not exactly a soccer power in the world stage either. They've never been to a World Cup final tournament before. How do they get the World Cup here? over-competing bids. A lot of unanswered questions around that. 
What about some of the concerns around human rights abuses in this country, the treatment of migrant workers to build those stadiums? Check this out now. FIFA, as the World Cup is about to begin, asking competing nations, don't talk about politics here now. Let's focus on soccer. Let's forget about the politics as the tournament begins. I don't know. Should we forget about the politics here? I've got Rob Keeler standing by from Global Athlete. Have a listen to this here now. A lot of international human rights groups have sounded the alarm on this country. Have a listen to this here now. This is Keti Niviabandi, who is from Amnesty International in Canada. And here's her thoughts. Many of them working uh, 14 to 18 hours um, a day, often without a rest day. Some of the security guards who are working on site, we know, have been denied uh, the opportunity to rest and are really detained in uh, appalling conditions. Um, So that is really our great concern, that the World Cup is happening on the back and uh, at the expense of the rights of, uh, of migrant workers in Qatar. Okay, that's Amnesty International's top official in Canada. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Rob Keeler, Director General of Global Athlete. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me again, Mike. Okay, Rob, are you excited about the World Cup? Will you be watching? Um, I'll be watching to see where athletes stand on this issue. And- yeah. You know, your comment at the beginning, FIFA is asking athletes not to speak up. And, uh, you know, one, two, a few words come to mind is shame on them. It, they're taking a, a page out of the International Olympic Committee playbook when the IOC brought the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games to Beijing, where we had crimes against humanity, and they asked the athletes to do the same thing. Um, and it's simply not acceptable. I mean, every human being has the right to freedom of expression, and to take that away from the athletes, I think, is is a sign that they're trying to cover things up. Yeah, the president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, making this comment the other day, last week, asking the 32 nations that are competing at the World Cup, including Canada, to stay away from politics as the tournament begins. So in the letter that he he wrote, please do not allow football to be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists. So let's concentrate let's concentrate on soccer and not and not politics or human rights abuses in this country. What did you think of that? Were you surprised to hear FIFA say that? Surprised, no. Disappointed, yes. Yeah. This is seems to be the narrative of sports. So they make these decisions to bring international sport to countries that are have crimes against humanity, where, you know, for example, LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus people that go to the country are potentially could be incarcerated given their laws, but yet we're okay with having a, a soccer match or a World Cup of soccer happening in the country. And as mentioned earlier, as the amount of thousands of migrant workers that have died preparing for this event. Um, if athletes want to speak up, their voice should be heard. If they want to raise awareness of what's happening in the country, they should be heard. We saw the example of the Australian Socceroos, who went out publicly with a statement with their teammates to to go out publicly and, and raise awareness of what was happening in Qatar to try to hope for change. And I think that's where the athletes have the right to do so. They didn't get a choice to choose where these events are being held. 
But if they are going to go and they are going, they should have the right to stand up and speak for themselves. Yeah, I agree with you, Rob. Speaking of Rob Keeler, global athlete, about the World Cup of Soccer starting soon in Qatar. Let's talk about a little bit about some of the controversies around these games. There have been reports of corruption around the awarding of the games to Qatar. That's been denied by the host country. It's been denied by FIFA. We've seen a lot of reports to the, to the contrary. Do you think there are still unanswered questions here about how, how this country even got the World Cup in the first place? I think there is, and this is the problem with international sport, is there's no accountability, no oversight, and they seem to be able to operate above the rule of law. And it, it happens almost every event we see now where there's sport washing in place and countries using sport as a mechanism to increase their their public perception. And we saw it with Russia during the Olympic Games, even prior to the invasion of Ukraine, to, to build confidence within the, their communities and their country, um, through sport and sport needs to do better. Um, if they're going to say sport is used to bring people together for the better humanity, um, and they can't simply just pop these events into countries that do have human rights uh, abuse issues. I mean, every country has human rights issues, but when you have crimes against humanity, it's a very different situation. Let's talk a little bit about some of the treatment of the workers who built these air-conditioned stadiums in in desert like conditions in the country uh and there have been reports about hundreds maybe thousands of of workers died while working on these stadiums in, in qatar and there are calls for reparations and, and compensation to be paid to the families of workers who died here while building these stadiums let me have a let's listen to mustafa Kadri here this guy is really interesting his his organization which is called equidem research has done a lot of on-the-ground on investigation in, in Qatar related to the, the treatment of workers, their working conditions there, how many how many have died uh, while working on the stadiums there. And he thinks this is an opportunity now for countries around the world to put some, put some pressure on this country to change things and improve things. So let's have a listen to what he has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. We have to put pressure on our soccer teams, on our sponsors, people like the big ones, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, you name it. They're all involved in this World Cup to say that we demand that you support these actions and you demand Qatar and FIFA compensate these workers and set up a migrant worker centre. You can put the pressure. Yeah, he's talked about a migrant worker centre that he would like to see set up in the country. This would be a place where workers who are brought into the country could go to for, for help and representation if they're treated poorly or they're not being paid. I'm not sure this country is ever going to to uh, to do something like that. Or do you think they will? Because they, they certainly haven't shown any willingness to change in the last 10 years since they were awarded the Games. But your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you said something, or he said something very interesting in terms of corporate responsibility and the sponsors sponsoring these games, where they have a social responsibility, and, and with that comes standing up for human rights. Um, yeah. All these corporations talk about equality, inclusion, and ensuring safe communities, but yet they're willing to sponsor events that, that don't practice that. So I think there's some responsibility on sponsors to stand up. When it comes to athletes themselves, this is their choice. And, and no one should be forced to speak up on an issue if they're not comfortable, if they're not ready, and not willing to. But when they are ready and willing to address the issues or bring them to light as players, 
they should be able to to do that. They should be embraced and they should be protected. Because anytime athletes speak up, there's always two sides of, of either someone coming after them or supporting. And and if we're going to allow athletes to to speak up, FIFA has to have a corporate responsibility to ensure they support these athletes and not silence them. Because if they silence them, they're part of the problem as well. Speaking to Rob Keeler, Director General of Global Athlete, talking about the approaching World Cup of Soccer in, in Qatar, FIFA encouraging countries participating at the tournament, including Canada, to not focus on politics during the tournament and focus instead on the soccer games that will be watched by millions around the world. Soccer Canada has actually weighed in on this, Rob, and they've issued a statement on the protection of workers' rights in the country. They also continue, they say they want to see dialogue on improving the rights of workers, migrant workers in the country, also protection for inclusivity across the country beyond the tournament in Qatar. You mentioned earlier that a lot of concerns around LGBTQ community members who are in the country for the games. Homosexuality is actually illegal in Qatar. What, what, what do you think could be done, and do you think that this is an opportunity here to put to put some pressure on this country to change? I mean, anytime you have the world's eyes looking at one country, um, obviously there, there's pressure that can be placed on, on that country. Um, yeah. My organization, we were focused on athletes and, and protecting athletes. There, there are organizations there, there such as FIFA Pro that looks right at directly with the, the professional athletes in, in soccer. So I, I think there is an opportunity, um, but when you have the head of sport asking people to be quiet, it, yeah. it doesn't feed in very well to that narrative of this This could be a potential room for change. We saw it, in the, or go back to the Beijing Olympics in, in 2008 when the IOC said it was an opportunity to open it up to the Western world. And we saw what happened in the most recent one in 2022 where you know, it was dire circumstances and human rights abuses happening in the country. So nothing changed. And, and I think that's where athletes can play a role if they're ready and willing to. And the general population needs to be aware of, of what athletes are facing by going to the country and, and what they can do to, to raise issues. But the corporate responsibility needs to be there. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not. Rob, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. Appreciate it. Pleasure, Mike. Have a good day. Okay.